0: Many of the countries that feel this the most acutely are the troop-contributing countries, often smaller, lower-income countries that provide troops to the UN.
1: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Before joining the United States House of Representatives in 2021, Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs worked at the United Nations and U.S. State Department. As she explains in this episode, this experience gave her unique insights into the valuable role the United States can play at the U.N., and the value the U.N. brings to U.S. foreign policy. Congresswoman Jacobs is a Democrat from Southern California who serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where she's the top Democrat on the Subcommittee on Africa, and on the House Armed Services Committee. We kick off discussing her work at the U.N. and State Department before having a longer discussion about a piece of legislation she introduced last Congress, to strengthen America's commitment to U.N. peacekeeping. We then have a broader discussion about Congress's relationship with the U.N. and any near-term opportunities she sees for Congress to support multilateral engagement. I think you will appreciate this conversation. You will learn a lot about the political dynamics in forming Congress's relationship with the United Nations, And Congresswoman Jacobs is very much a rising star in the Democratic Party. She is the youngest member of the Democratic Party leadership in Congress today. Now here is my conversation with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, Democrat from California. I wanted to kick off by having you discuss your biography before coming to Congress. I think listeners would find it interesting and unique that prior to winning elected office and joining Congress in 2021, you worked at both the UN and the State Department. Where did you work in the UN system?
0: Yeah, so Congress was actually never part of the plan. I thought I was going to be a UN or State Department staffer for the rest of my career, So after I finished my master's degree in international affairs at Columbia, I worked at UNDP as a peace and development in Fiji. worked at peacekeeping, doing elections policy and strategy around what peacekeeping missions should be doing when there's an election in the country they're operating in. And then I worked at UNICEF in their innovation unit.
1: At peacekeeping, was there a specific election or potential election that you were monitoring at the time?
0: Yeah, so we were actually looking at policy and best practices around all the previous elections that had happened when peacekeeping missions were in country and what guidance we should be putting out around what should be done in the future. But it also was around when the mission in Mali was being stood up, which was also going to be when the post-transition election in Mali was supposed to happen after the initial coup of the recent set of coups that we've had. And so I was doing a lot of work around sort of what options there were to stand up a mission while an election was happening or what a more prolonged transitional period could look like and what historical precedents there was for that.
1: Fascinating. So sort of in the weeds policy work for UN peacekeeping.
0: Very nerdy. Yes.
1: <laughs> and at the State Department, what did you do at the State Department?
0: I was in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations as a policy officer, so I mostly worked on U.S. policy towards conflict areas in East and West Africa, did a lot in Nigeria around the time of the Bring Back Our Girls and the height of Boko Haram's capture of territory, did a lot of work on East Africa and how we counter and prevent violent extremism there, and then sort of Broader policy work around countering and preventing violent extremism, security sector reform, and how we do a better job of doing that security assistance and helping promote good governance in the security sector. And then also thinking about how we can be doing conflict prevention more broadly and better as an entity.
1: Again, in the weeds policy stuff. That's fascinating. So you did mention Molly. I don't know if you saw this a few days prior to when we're speaking now on the UN General Assembly resolution marking the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a vote to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mali was one of only like maybe seven countries in the world to vote with Russia. I take it that's sort of an example of like Wagner diplomacy or Wagner group diplomacy at work, but do you have any impressions of why Mali took that vote?
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, we know that the current regime in Mali is beholden to the Wagner group to keep power and are sort of relying on the Wagner group to do the kinds of military operations that they don't have the capacity to that I think many of us in other countries are very concerned about the human rights abuses that are being committed.
1: Yeah, I saw that vote and sort of my eyebrow was raised because that's certainly not how they voted last time, but I think that was probably pre-coup. So you worked really in the trenches in the UN and also at the State Department. And now, of course, you are an elected member of Congress. I'm curious to get your impressions of, based on, on both of your experiences, working at the UN State Department and now in Congress, What value did you see the United States bringing to the work of the United Nations and vice versa? What's the value that the United Nations brings to U.S. foreign policy?
0: Yeah, well, actually, a lot of the reason I moved from the U.N. to the State Department was because of the outsized role that U.S. policy plays at the U.N. So, for instance, when we were working on elections policy, a lot of why there was a sped up timeline to have elections in a lot of these countries is because U.S. law prohibits the provision of assistance to countries that have extra constitutional transfers of power. And so it was often the U.S. pushing for quick elections, even when experts at the U.N. did not think that was necessarily the best way to get to a just and lasting post-conflict scenario. I worked, for instance, on some refugee response issues at UNICEF. And it was clear that UNICEF could keep responding as much as they could. But at the end of the day, you had to go to the policies that were being made that didn't prevent these sort of refugee situations from happening. And so to me, like so much of what the UN is working on is directly related to US policy. And that's why I felt it was important to move over to the US side and work on that. But I also think that it goes both ways. The United States is incredibly benefited by the multilateral system. We are able to provide humanitarian assistance, provide development assistance in a much more holistic way and coordinated way because of our work with the multilateral system like UNDP, like UNICEF. We've seen huge successes in global health through our partnerships with the UN system. But also, like thinking more broadly about national security, the US, our power is derived from our ability to build coalitions and to bring other countries along for what we're doing. And I think we see that very clearly in the case of Ukraine. And the multilateral system is an incredibly important part of how we actually are able to extend US power and coalition building and a key source of our power, especially as we're moving into a more multipolar situation.
1: So I wanted to drill down a little bit and ask you about one piece of legislation that you have sponsored in the last Congress, the United States Commitment to Peacekeeping Act. What is that legislation and why do you feel that it is important and necessary?
0: Basically, what that legislation does is it lifts the cap that Congress created in 1994 that says that the U.S. can't contribute more than 25% of the budget of UN peacekeeping operations. Now, the way the peacekeeping budget works is that countries are assessed based on the size of their economy, and the U.S. is assessed dues almost always higher than the congressionally mandated cap. And so, for instance, in order to actually fully pay our peacekeeping dues, we've temporarily lifted that cap 15 times since 2000. But even still, we are in a constant state of debt with the UN. We haven't lifted the cap since 2017. And so we actually are in arrears over a billion dollars, even though we are part of the negotiations around the assessed dues and how much people are asked to pay, and we have to vote for it at the General Assembly, and we vote for it as a country. We're not talking about anything crazy. The actual rate of U.S. assessed dues is usually around 27% instead of 25%. But this cap and the resulting debt actually really diminishes U.S. standing and our ability to pursue U.S. priorities, especially around oversight and accountability and human rights and other issues that are incredibly important to the United States. And we have seen countries like China seize upon this issue of arrears to portray the United States as an unreliable partner. And so, you know, we've actually already started to see these consequences. Many of the countries that feel this the most acutely are the troop-contributing countries, often smaller, lower-income countries that provide troops to the UN, When the U.S. doesn't pay our full bill, it's their troops that don't get compensated. And so we've actually seen China be able to use this issue to get some of those troop contributing countries who often have been some of our best partners and allies in their votes at the U.N. to start voting with China rather than with the U.S. on certain issues that are really important to us.
1: Can you name names? Do you know like examples?
0: I don't have any specific examples for you but we have definitely seen it in our dialogue with these countries and you know there are even like small things like when we're negotiating in the fifth committee of the UN which is the budget committee around whether we want a human rights officer in which peacekeeping mission and and should we include protection of civilians as part of the mandate and all those things that actually like because we are behind in our dues. Like China will often get their way, even though we still pay a much larger part of the peacekeeping budget than they do, but we're seen as not reliable partners and other countries often side with them in these negotiations.
1: Yeah. Reporting on the UN for the last few years, I have seen that dynamic you describe in which China kind of seizes that opportunity and seeks to eliminate human rights officer positions in a number of peacekeeping missions. So you introduced the U.S. Commitment to Peacekeeping Act to get rid of that arbitrary 25% cap that Congress back in 1994 imposed on U.S. contributions to U.N. peacekeeping. What was the fate of that bill in the last Congress?
0: Yeah, so it actually passed the House as part of the America Competes Act, which was a comprehensive package to strengthen our diplomatic efforts and supply chains and manufacturing. And we were hopeful we were gonna get it in a final negotiated package with the Senate. But alas, as is often the case, uh, the Senate did not agree to that. And so we did not get it turned into law. But I will say it was the first time it has ever actually passed a body of Congress. And so I do think it's incredible progress, even if we weren't actually able to get it over the finish line.
1: If memory serves, I think didn't the Senate in those negotiations for what was the compete act, but became that you know semiconductor. Act if essentially throw out like all of the foreign policy bills that were attached to that major piece of legislation that passed bipartisanly.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah.
1: And the United States commitment to peacekeeping acts was one of the kind of victims of that effort to yeah. get rid of all foreign policy.
0: I think on a bipartisan basis in the House, you will find frustration with the Senate on that and many other issues.
1: So, do you have plans to reintroduce the act this Congress?
0: We are planning to reintroduce the act this Congress, and we're working with some people on the other side of the aisle who have expressed sympathy for this idea to see if we can get a bipartisan push around it. I think one key piece of this legislation is that it's not just about raising the cap, it also is about reform. And so the repeal is contingent on a written commitment from the head of peacekeeping, the undersecretary general of peace operations to engage regularly with the United States on making significant progress towards reforms. And in five years, and should the State Department determine that significant reforms were not made in the time required, the cap would be put back in place. So that was the version that passed the House. And I think that Tying the issue of funding and reform, I'm hopeful we'll be able to get a bipartisan consensus and and get it across the finish line this Congress.
1: And tying UN reform efforts to US funding of the UN has typically been the way that Republican members of Congress approached UN funding and, and UN reform issues. So you're suggesting that if you perhaps more acutely tie reform to removing the peacekeeping cap, that you'll be able to secure some bipartisan support for the bill
0: yeah i think that usually it's been done to continuously delay funding so ours is tied so tightly because actually what we can't do is mandate reforms without providing the corresponding funding because Our credibility at the UN is so eroded by these arrears that we are in. And so to me, they have to be tightly combined so that we are talking about reforms with this additional funding instead of the way that my friends on the other side of the aisle will sometimes do it, that they use the idea of reforms as a way to actually delay the funding. And also, this is about a commitment to reforms. We know these reforms are going to take longer than five years, but it's about making sure that enough progress has been made and that there is a commitment to continuing those reforms.
1: Are there any like specific reforms that you think might entice more Republicans to support this effort?
0: Yeah, I think in the legislation, we have highlighted reforms around sexual assault, around human rights, around the effectiveness of peacekeeping. I'll be honest, an unfortunate reality of Washington at the moment is that if you want something done in a bipartisan way in the foreign policy space, you have to generally frame it in terms of the strategic competition with China. And as we talked about, that's very present in peacekeeping in particular, but in the UN system more broadly. And so some of the reforms are also about how we make sure peacekeeping is effective and how we're properly transitioning post-peacekeeping and how we're making sure that it's not turning into this like extension of Chinese power that we know the Chinese government has been trying to do with the reforms they've been asking for in those negotiations.
1: I've been doing this for so long. I remember when framing things in terms of counterterrorism was the way to get anything Passed bipartisan way in, in in Congress on the foreign policy space, but your point about framing it in terms of strategic competition is 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 interesting and noted for for the reasons we discussed earlier that indeed China is becoming a more significant player at the UN and in UN peacekeeping.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Actually, I, I know it's not a coincidence that the reason we were able to get this passed for the first time is in the Competes Act, which was designed directly as a response to strategic competition.
1: So I know that a few months ago, over the summer, you visited Sudan and South Sudan as part of a congressional delegation looking at UN and also peacekeeping issues, specifically in in South Sudan. What did you see or experience on that trip that helped inform your view about The effectiveness of UN peacekeeping and what the United States can do to make UN peacekeeping more effective?
0: Yeah, look, we ask peacekeepers to go to the trickiest and thorniest conflicts around the world. And the US derives a benefit from that, right? Many studies have shown that it's much more cost effective to send a UN peacekeeping mission than a US military mission to these countries. I think South Sudan is the perfect case of a very difficult conflict where what we traditionally think of as peacekeeping is only one piece of what we're asking the mission to do. Because for a long time, there was actually no peace to keep. And so how do you protect civilians and try and stabilize the situation in that context, which, you know, is not really what peacekeeping was designed for. The original peacekeeping missions were designed for after a peace treaty was signed to basically like stand In the middle, and make sure no one like cheated on it. And so, I think it's an example of the very complex operations we are now asking our peacekeepers to undertake, which brings a a lot of complications. You know, in some ways, the mission in South Sudan is a great example of the UN actually being able to provide really comprehensive service delivery to a very vulnerable population. On the other hand, we also see that the population now expects those services from the UN, not from their own government. And so you're not getting that same feedback loop to the government that you would typically want to see governance sort of improve. So I think that was sort of a important thing for me to see. I think another thing that really stuck with me was the real role and protection of civilians that the UN has and how, you know, often the U.S. government will train troop-contributing countries' troops before they deploy to a mission, but we don't actually have any mechanism in place to sort of train while they're in mission. And so when a protection of civilian incidents happens, trying to figure out what more we can be doing to help make sure that the responses are as effective as possible in those scenarios, which are very difficult situations that these troops are in.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to remind listeners, you know, when the conflict broke out in South Sudan, like hundreds of thousands of people fled to UN peacekeeping bases, which were not like set up as refugee camps, but were peacekeeping bases, but expected and, and were given the protection from the fighting outside of the camps and the bases.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so how you sort of do that transition to make them more holistic IDP camps, while also understanding the sort of conflict sensitivity of population movements, especially as it relates to the politics of the country. None of it is simple. If it was, this conflict would have been solved long ago. I mean, I also think it really highlights that no matter how much the international community does, good governance by the local leaders is the key thing to whether or not there will be peace. And unfortunately, that has not been the case with the leaders in South Sudan. And so there's only so much the UN and a peacekeeping mission can do when you have leaders who don't care about the well-being of their country, don't care about anything but preserving themselves in power and winning the sort of rivalry they have with other leaders. So
1: lastly, beyond UN peacekeeping, do you see other opportunities for multilateral engagement by Congress in the near future?
0: Absolutely. I I think there's a a lot of engagement. So Congressman French Hill, a Republican from Arkansas, and I are leading a delegation of freshman members to visit the UN to help educate new members about the importance of multilateralism. I also think that there is a lot of work we can be doing on reforms and thinking about reforms and also meeting our obligations, but, you know, thinking about reforms. And I was actually really heartened that as part of the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit, the Biden administration committed to including the AU in the G20 and committed to broader U.N. Security Council reform that includes inviting African countries to be permanent members. And I think this kind of work around how we actually make the system work better, as we've seen with Russia's veto, with China's veto, how we make these systems actually work and actually take into account the voice of the countries that are most impacted by the decisions, I think there's real area to work together there.
1: Congresswoman Jacobs, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to seeing you reintroduce the peacekeeping legislation in the near future.
0: Well, thank you. And thanks for giving me an opportunity to spend 20 minutes talking nerdily about the UN. I don't get to do it that much these days.
1: I do it every day. I love it. I'm jealous. Thank you again for your time. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on Globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.